Today we are heading back into our series called Fulfilled, and I think this is week seven. Last week we talked about the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and this week we're diving into the Feast of First Fruits. Now you may be saying, well, which feast? Because there are actually kind of two feasts of First Fruits, and the more common one, the more uh, popular one is the Feast of First Fruits that's um, related to Pentecost. Um, which is going to be our next one, but this one is actually a feast of first fruits that happens in the midst of uh, the feast of unleavened bread. So we've talked about the Passover, we've talked about unleavened bread, and now we're talking about the feast of first fruits. So I'm going to dive right in. Uh, Leviticus chapter 23, uh, verse 9. We're going to start here. I'm going to read uh, the chapter, read the section that deals with the feast of first fruits. And then we're going to talk a little bit about some specific points that I wanted to point out, go into our key takeaways for it, and then dive into our type and our fulfillment, right? So here's the idea that the first fruits feast is the type that God instituted for his people to celebrate, honor him, and worship him with. But it ultimately points to the work of Christ in the New Testament. So we're finding Christ fulfilling the feast of first fruits, and that's what our goal is today. So I'm excited about that. So let's start chapter 23 verse 9 in Leviticus says this, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land, that's very important, that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the firstfruits of your harvest to the priest, and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord, so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, very important, the priest shall wave it. And on the day when you wave the sheaf, you shall offer a male lamb, a year old without blemish, as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the grain offering with it shall be two tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, a food offering to the Lord with a pleasing aroma and the drink offering with it shall be of wine, a fourth of a hen, and you shall eat neither bread nor grain, parched, which means roasted, or fresh until this same day. Until you have brought the offering of your God, it is a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. I was just actually realizing something about the text that I hadn't caught before, that's why I was kind of like taking a pause there for a moment. But there's a couple things that I want us to notice really quick about the Feast of First Fruits. One is this, is that it occurs once they enter the land. So when God gives them the instructions and the command for this feast, they're actually not in the land yet. They're actually at Mount Sinai still, right? So God, they're camped at Mount Sinai. Leviticus happens at Mount Sinai. And what happens is, is God begins to give them the law. Right? They give gives them the way in which he prescribes and commands the way in which they're going to worship him now that he's delivered them from Egypt. So Leviticus is all about how the Israelites were going to worship God. So you had the offerings and you had the feasts. You know, you had all of these other observances that God institutes for his people. And so in this in this book, Leviticus is the feast of first fruits. But it's actually not supposed to be celebrated until they get into the land, because he says, when you get into the land and reap its harvest. 
you will celebrate this feast. Now, they are at Mount Sinai. They still are a nomadic people. They're still wandering. They're still traveling. They're not in any place for, one per for a long period of time to actually sow and reap a harvest. So this would happen actually once they got into the land. Now, it occurs, it says, when they bring the wave sheaf or the sheep to be waved before the Lord, the um, Leviticus records that it was the day after the Sabbath. So the day after the Sabbath, um, you would bring the, the sheaf to be waved before the Lord. Now, there's a little bit of argument here, a little bit of, uh, you know, uh, a little bit of, uncertainty as to which Sabbath they're referring to because if you guys remember from last week the Feast of Unleavened Bread had a Sabbath in it right the first day which was the day after Passover Nisan 15 was a Sabbath day it was a day of rest but it was a day of rest that could have happened not on a Saturday it could have happened at any point during the week depending on what day Passover landed so the day after the Passover the first day of unleavened bread was a Sabbath but there was also a weekly Sabbath now, in Jesus' time, when we look at him coming, right, and dying uh, around the time of Passover, this actually happens on the same day, which we'll talk about in a minute. So, when Jesus came and he died around the, the, the time of Passover, right, that, those two Sabbaths fell on the same day because Jesus uh, died on a Friday, and then that Passover, uh, sorry, the, the, day, the next day was the Sabbath day, and that was also the first day of unleavened bread as we would see in the New Testament. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. But there's this discrepancy now. Were they talking about the Sabbath, which is after, the day after the weekly Sabbath, which would have been a Sunday? Or are they talking about uh, the day after uh, the first day of unleavened bread, which is also a Sabbath, which would have been the 16th of Nisan? The 16th of Nisan. So we're not really sure. But for, for our purposes, it's really awesome because those two days fall on the same day um, in Jesus' time. So. But basically, it's the day after the Sabbath that they were to bring their, their sheaf, right, of barley, uh, because we're talking about a barley harvest here, the sheaf into the temple and present it to the, to, the, to the priest, and they would wave it before the Lord for them to be accepted. So here's the idea, is that there's a harvest that's coming. There's a harvest that's coming. And God says, I want you to bring the first of that harvest to me and offer it to me because it's mine. God is really, really specific about the first of things. He loved, he, 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 he demanded because of who he is, because he's the provider of all things, that the first of all things would be given to him. When they, when they left the land of Egypt, he told them right around the feast, uh, when, he, when he gave him the, the command to, to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread, he also talked about consecrating every firstborn to himself, setting apart every firstborn. God, um, because of how he delivered his people out of Egypt through the uh, taking of the firstborn, he, 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 um, he, has a, he puts a huge emphasis on the firstborn or the first of things. Those first things are the best things that belong to him. And so we see that in here in the Feast of Firstfruits. So uh, the, the Feast of Firstfruits occurs the day after the Sabbath, of the Passover week. So you have Passover on the 14th, the first day of unleavened bread on the 15th, and then depending on which, uh, which one you subscribe to, either the Feast of First Fruits happens the very next day, or the Feast of First Fruits happens after the weekly Sabbath that is in the week of unleavened bread 
the following day of the weekly Sabbath that falls in the week of unleavened bread. Okay, a little confusing, but it doesn't really matter too much for our application today. Um, but it marked the beginning of the barley harvest. Now, the Feast of First Fruits doesn't, does this, doesn't necessarily deal with fruit. It doesn't really actually deal with fruit at all. First Fruits is just this idea of the produce, the provision. First Fruits is the idea that God is providing something, and in this case, it was barley, and that the harvest of the barley was coming in. So the harvest, the barley harvest, the, the barley grain was the first one to ripen and be ready for harvest in the season. So you had the barley harvest first, and then you had uh, 50 weeks later, which was Pentecost, was the, the beginning of the wheat harvest. And so the barley harvest was coming in first. And so what needed to happen was is every farmer would have to take a portion of their barley harvest that was beginning to ripe. Now the whole harvest hadn't, hadn't ripened yet, but there was a portion of the harvest that would begin to ripe. And God said, you got to go out into your field and you got to collect the first of that harvest, the very best of that harvest, and you've got to gather it and give it to me. And so what they would do is they would go out in preparation of the Feast of first fruits, and they would go and inspect their harvest. They would go and inspect their field. And then they would select the best and first that was ripening at the time as a way to offer it to the Lord on the day of first fruits, on the, on the day that they celebrate the Feast of first fruits. The priests would also have their own uh, field that was uh, growing as well. Typically, we would, we would see just from Jewish sources, they would usually have a field planted in the Kidron Valley. Um, and what they would do is, is that they would also grow barley and that they would also do go through the same process and they would also offer a first fruits offering to the Lord of the barley harvest from their own field on behalf of the whole nation. So not only were individual uh, farmers doing this, individual Israelites doing this, uh, but they were also, it was also being done on behalf of the nation by the priests as well. So they would gather uh, a portion of their barley harvest and they would call that a sheaf or an omer. And it was basically an omer was um, one-tenth of an ephah. It was, um, in today's day, it's a dry measurement, usually equal to nine cups um, or four pints or two quarts. Okay, and they would bring this and they would gather together, they would bundle it up, and they would present it to the priest, okay? And then the priest would wave it before the Lord, okay? And then it would be accepted, um, and then it would be then threshed and winnowed, and the grain would be ground into flour, a really, really fine flour, mixed with oil and frankincense. They would create this dough. And then they would actually offer that as a burnt offering to the Lord. And then once that happened, then they could partake of the rest of their feast. Once the Lord had accepted that first fruit offering, the very best of what they had to offer from the from the harvest that the Lord had already provided them. Once he had accepted that, they were then able and allowed to begin to reap the rest of their harvest. And not only that, partake of it. That's why in, in, uh, chap in, in chapter 23, uh, in verse 14, we say this. It says this, And you shall eat neither bread nor grain, parched or fresh, until the same day. Right? Until you have brought the offering of your God is a statue forever throughout your generations. So up until the point where they offered the first fruits, they could not harvest any of the barley for their own partaking, for their own, um, for their own need. They had to wait in order for God to accept their offering of first fruits 
to him in order for them to be able to partake of the harvest. They were not able, they were not supposed to eat any grain parched or fresh from that harvest until they, uh, their offering had been accepted by the Lord through the priests. So the offering, there's a couple key things that I want to share with you this morning about this offering and how it ties to Jesus. So the offering, the offering of the first fruits was a sign of dependence. Um, the offering had to cost them something. See, they weren't, they, weren't to, they weren't commanded to go out and just pick out any part of the harvest that was growing. They weren't commanded to pick out part of the harvest that had not ripened yet. They were commanded to pick the best and the first of the harvest. They were commanded to give to God what it is that they wanted to keep. They were required to give the first and the best of what God had already blessed them with. It's a really interesting giving principle that God still today with his people requires us to give him our first and our best as an honor and as worship to him. That he provides everything for us, provides everything for us and sustains us with the power of his hand that he provides all things, even in the harvest, even in our lives today, that whatever it is that we have been given and that he sustains us with, it's his. He has given us our um, measure of provision. And so today still, he requires our first and our best when we think about what he has already given us. It's a wonderful giving principle um, that we can, we can bring forth from the Old Testament into today. But there was this dependence um, that needed to be shown with the Lord. So they had to bring in the first and best of their harvest, not knowing how good the harvest was going to be that year. They had to give up what they wanted to keep. They had to give up something that was going to cost them in their worship of God. God had said to them, you're given to give me the best and the first of what I've already provided for you. See, the full harvest was not ready yet. It was just starting to come in, starting to ripen. And the farmer had no way of knowing how good that harvest was gonna be that year, but yet he was gonna still take his first and best as, a, as an offering to the Lord, an offer to him, not knowing how well that harvest was going to come in that year. There was a dependence on the Lord in this offering. It was saying, I'm depending on you, Lord. I'm depending on your provision. I'm giving you this as an act of worship because you have already provided all things for me. And so I am depending on you to bring in the rest of the harvest, and I'm giving this to you as a faith act that you will continue to provide. It was a giving of what was already his, trusting that he would provide for the rest. It was a dependence. There was also this idea of an acceptance. So not only were they dependent on the rest of the harvest that God was gonna provide, 
but they were also accepted through it. It says here, and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord so that you may be accepted. So they would give the sheaf of barley to the priest. The priest would wave it before the Lord. The Lord would then either decide to accept or reject it. And it was through this waving of the sheaf and through this offering that, that God would accept that offering of first fruits. And in connection with that, the acceptance of the first fruits would also signify and symbolize the acceptance of the rest of the harvest. So through the first fruits offering, God was accepting the whole harvest for himself. He was, in a sense, blessing the harvest that was to come. The first fruits represented the whole harvest, and the acceptance of the first fruit symbolized the acceptance of the whole harvest. It was set apart. The first fruits was set apart for the Lord so that God would set apart the whole harvest for his people. The first fruits were set apart for God. They were for him. And through that acceptance, God was setting apart the harvest for his people. The acceptance of the wave offering basically sanctified the rest of the harvest. The rest of the harvest was set apart and sanctified through the offering of the first part of it, through the first fruits. There was also the sense of anticipation. When, when they offered the first fruit harvest, when they offered the first fruit offering, they were not able to eat it until it was accepted. So there was this anticipation that, you know, I'm going to offer this to the Lord as an act of worship because he's provided it for me anyway, in anticipation that he will accept it and so that I can enjoy the fruit of my labor that God has provided. So there was this, there was this kind of anticipation going on. Uh, in the same manner that God provided the first fruits, he would also provide the rest of the harvest. So the farmer would come in, he would collect uh, the sheaves, and he would bundle them and present them. And there was this sense of anticipation that as the Lord accepts it, and as the Lord receives it, and as the Lord provides for the first fruit, which he did, there was this anticipation that he was also not only going to provide for the first fruit, but he was also going to provide for the rest of the harvest. And so as he provides the rest of the harvest, the farmer gets to partake in the fruit of the rest of the harvest. So, how does this point to Christ? How does Jesus come and fulfill this feast? A couple of things that we can look to that are just absolutely amazing. Jesus rises, is resurrected on the feast of first fruits. 
We read in scripture, John tells us in uh, John chapter 19, verse 31, that Jesus dies and is crucified on the day of preparation. John 19, verse 31. Uh, if you want to turn there real quick. John 19, 31. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. Now, in, in parentheses, it says, for that Sabbath was a high day. So this was a special Sabbath. We can in, infer from, from, from this language that most likely what John is referring to is that the weekly Sabbath, which is a Saturday, was also the 15th of unleavened bread, which was also a Sabbath because it was the first day of the, of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which we talked about last week. So that means that Jesus dies, crucified on a Friday. Um, the next day, they had to take his his they had to take his body off the cross, right? Because it could not be left on the Sabbath day. It could not be left overnight because that would defile the land, according to Jewish um, to to the commands of God. So they would have to take that body down. It happened on the day of preparation. The day of preparation is always usually referred to as a Friday because it prepares. It's the day of preparation for the Sabbath because you cannot do any work on the Sabbath, right? So you would have to prepare all your food, all your meals, you know, for the Sabbath the day before so that you would do, you would not be in violation of the Sabbath. So the day of preparation, Friday, John 19, verse 31. Bodies are taken down. And we know through Leviticus chapter 23 that the Feast of First Fruits happens the day after the Passover, or the day after the Sabbath, on the Passover week, on the week of unleavened bread. In fact, the Feast of Pentecost, which is the next one we're going to look at, speaks to this. It says, you shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. So the counting between the barley harvest and the wheat harvest, which was Pentecost, would start the day of first fruits. And that day, we are told in Leviticus 23, is the day after the Sabbath, when you bring in the sheaf to be waved. So John 19.31 and Leviticus 23, we can... I think pretty confidently say that Jesus rose on the feast of first fruits. So as as the farmers, as the Israelites were presenting their first fruit offering of barley to be waved before the Lord for acceptance of the rest of the harvest, Jesus is rising from the dead. Same day. In John 20, verse 1, we uh, kind of were able to, to look at what John 20, verse 1 says and sort of corroborate this idea. He says, now on the first day of the week, now on the first day of the week in the Jewish calendar was a Sunday. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And the other gospels say the same thing. So we can confidently say that Jesus rose on the day after the Sabbath, during the week of Passover, which was the day God had commanded his people to celebrate the Feast of Firstfruits. 
we could just stop there. We could just stop there and say, okay, Jesus, I see what you're doing. Father, I see what you're doing. But we'll continue on. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul connects these two ideas with even greater clarity. First Corinthians chapter 15 talks about the resurrection of Christ. I'm going to start in verse 12, but the whole chapter is just confirms the parts of the chapter just kind of confirm what we are what we are talking about what we are pursuing today but I'll start in chapter 12 so there was this heresy going on in the in the in the Corinthian church and there were people in the church that were saying that were denying that the dead could be resurrected and that denial obviously would also deny the fact that Jesus was resurrected and so Paul goes on to lay out this, this case that if, if Jesus isn't resurrected, then we, there's, then we are completely still cut off and alienated from the presence of God. That our faith is futile if there is no resurrection. So he challenges this, this teaching that was happening in the, in the church of Corinth. And this is what he says. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. So he's, he's making this comparison. Like if you're talking, if, if the teaching in your church and people are going around your church saying, you know, people aren't raised from the dead. Like no one's ever been raised from the dead. Paul is saying, well, if you believe no one's been raised from the dead, then you also believe that Christ wasn't raised from the dead. And if Christ wasn't raised from the dead, then where, what are we left with? We're left still dead in our sin. There is no victory. There is no atonement. There is no work that has been done. The resurrection is just as important as the actual work on the cross. And, if, and we'll talk about that in a minute. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Like you're believing nothing. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. And here's, 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 here's the part coming up. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sin. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are people to be most pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And here it is. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end, 
when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. So here we have Paul explicitly, explicitly connecting these two ideas of Christ and first fruits. Christ as the guarantee of our resurrection. So let's talk about these same three points that we talked about with the feast of first fruits. First is this dependence. In 1 Corinthians 15, same 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 reading, verse 14, this is what he says. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. So, if Christ is not raised, then we will not be raised. If Christ is not raised, then we have no hope for eternity. So there is a dependence on the first fruit of Christ being raised. Just as it is with the farmer, there is a dependence on the first fruit of his crop that the Lord has provided. There is a dependence that, that when he offers the first fruit, the first and the best, what he's saying is, is Lord, I'm depending on you for the rest. I'm depending on you by giving you my first and best. I'm also depending on you for what you will provide given my faith offering to you. And so it is with Christ that we depend on his resurrection for our ultimate resurrection from the dead at the consummation of the age. When it all comes to a head, we depend on God through his first fruit resurrection. We put our faith in Christ and believe in his first fruit resurrection that points to a greater resurrection. That's a resurrection of the dead when Jesus returns. So there is a dependence on his resurrection for us. There is a dependence on his first fruit act on our behalf. We talked about acceptance. We talked about the acceptance part. The acceptance in the sense that, that as the, the priest takes the sheaf, and waves it before the Lord. It says in Leviticus chapter 23, we just read it, that the Lord accepts the first fruits and in turn sanctifies or sets apart the rest of the harvest. So the first fruit offering is accepted, and through the first fruit offering that's been accepted, the rest of the harvest is also accepted. In verse 20, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It says this, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen away. Christ's acceptable offering or sacrifice is made evident by his resurrection. See, if Christ's offering was not acceptable to God, he's not resurrected because he actually doesn't defeat sin and death. And we know 
we know that the ultimate enemy that is to be defeated through the coming of the Messiah is death. And so in Christ's first fruit resurrection that points to a larger resurrection or a larger harvest, in his raising, in the Father's raising of the dead, his resurrection of his son, what he is saying is, is I am accepting the offering on behalf of the coming harvest. I'm accepting the offering and the sacrifice of my son. I'm accepting that, and in turn, I'm accepting everyone that he will resurrect, that have put his, their faith in him at the coming of the new age. So our acceptance by his offering is evident in our resurrection when he returns. So Christ's offering, Christ's sacrifice is accepted by the evidence of his resurrection. And our acceptance by the Lord through our faith in Christ is evident through our resurrection when Jesus returns. Are you serious right now? It is Christ the first fruit. He is the first and the best. He is the only one that could have been offered. He's the only one that could have been sacrificed. He's the only one that could have been offered and accepted. And not only is he offered and accepted by the Lord, but he's also offered and accepted on our behalf so that we are accepted. This is just amazing news. This is the, this is the story. This is the news. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we have the tremendous responsibility to go out and share with the world. His offering, his sacrifice was accepted because he was the first and the best. Scripture tells us that Jesus is the firstborn of creation. He is the firstborn of creation that before all he was. He was the firstborn of creation that would be resurrected. Adam was the firstborn of creation that would die. Jesus is the firstborn of creation that will have everlasting life. He's also referred to as the firstborn of the dead. Think about this for a moment. Jesus is the first person, the first human being to walk the earth that lived and died and was resurrected never to die again. Think about that for a moment. Lazarus was actually resurrected before Jesus, right? But Lazarus lived, died, resurrected, and died. Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. Jesus comes and lives as a man and God at the same time. Both man and God. Two natures, one person. Okay, let's not confuse that. He was not just a man. He was both. Two natures, one person. He lives, he dies, 
And he also is the first to be resurrected, to never die again. That's why he is the firstborn of the dead. The firstborn of the dead. What else do we see? There is an anticipation. Not only is there a dependence on Christ as the first fruit and the first fruit resurrection, there is a dependence, there is an acceptance, but there's also an anticipation. As the farmer anticipated the coming of the rest of the harvest, right? The ripening of the rest, when he offered the first fruit to the Lord, he was offering that to be accepted before the Lord. And it was his first and it was his best. But he was also in that offering anticipating the rest of the harvest to come in. To partake of the fruit of his labor that God had provided. And so too with us, there is an anticipation. What is that anticipation? That we are the first fruits or we will be the first fruits, or we are the first fruits of a larger harvest. Jesus is the first fruit of the larger harvest. He is the first fruit of the resurrection. And we know that through his sacrifice and through the acceptance of his offering, that we have been made acceptable and that we will also share in his resurrection. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 Verse 22 says this. We already read it. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Now here it is. Here's the anticipation. Each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, because he's first and best. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. That's us. And then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father, destroying every ruler and every authority. So there's this anticipation coming that Christ is, has begun this moment of anticipation. Uh, Christ in his resurrection has caused us to live in a place of anticipation that, that what he has already done, what he has already secured, what he has already offered on our behalf to be acceptable before the Lord, we will also experience with him, in him, at the end. There is this anticipation of Christ being the first fruit of the harvest to come. And that harvest is the harvest of resurrection. So we anticipate that day, that even though we may fall asleep in the Lord, even though we may pass away from this earth, that we are resting, waiting for that first fruit harvest to come alive, the, the harvesting of the resurrection that is guaranteed by the resurrection of Christ as our first fruit. Are you kidding me right now? I mean, the first fruits offering as a type of Christ guaranteed the acceptance of the coming harvest just as Christ's offering on our behalf as a first fruits offering was accepted and evidenced by his resurrection guaranteeing our acceptance by the Lord 
and our coming resurrection in him. Think about that. Christ's resurrection is the eternal assurance of the Lord's acceptance of us through Christ's offering on our behalf. The resurrection makes no compromises with sin and death. Sin and death are completely destroyed through his resurrection. Through his resurrection. Because the Lord's nature, just nature, is satisfied by the offering. See, if Jesus doesn't rise, then there is no forgiveness of sin. Jesus rises because his offering on the cross, the sacrifice, was acceptable to God. Why? Because Jesus was the first and best. He was perfect, spotless, blameless, as we've talked about in Passover. It was only his sacrifice, it was only his offering that could be uh, given to God, that could be offered up to God on our behalf so that we could be accepted. That we are now considered righteous in the eyes of God on Christ's behalf because he offered the only thing that was good and acceptable. It is only through the resurrection that we understand what the cross accomplished. With no resurrection, there's no forgiveness of sin. With no resurrection, there's no putting away of the old life. With no resurrection, there's no hope because death is not defeated. Sin is not defeated. So we are still dead in our old ways. We have no hope to live a life in Christ because he did not rise. Romans 4.25 says this. It's short. It's really short. Sorry. Right here. Talking about Jesus, he says, Paul says, Jesus, it will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. He's talking about righteousness. He's saying righteousness will be granted to us through our faith in Christ and Christ alone. That righteousness cannot be granted and imputed to us in any other way. That there is nothing that we can do to allow or to, uh, to, to cause God to impute the righteousness of his son, his perfect son, on us so that we are positioned before Christ or before the Lord perfectly. Without spot, blemish, we are justified, we are made righteous, no longer ashamed, no longer uh, living under condemnation and guilt. He said, it, it is through Christ that we have been gifted righteousness. And listen to this, Christ who was delivered up for our trespasses and what? Raised, not just delivered up on the cross, but raised, death, resurrection, only through those two things are we justified. It is for our justification. So Christ, listen, can you, I can't even, I can't even begin to fathom this, that Christ comes and dies. He suffers. 
He takes the whole curse of the world on himself, the whole curse of sin on himself, the curse of man on himself. All of our inability to worship God in the way he deserves to be worshiped on himself, he takes it all. And why does he take it all? He takes it all so that we can live justified. He is raised for our justification. Like, are you serious? Like, this is the work of our Savior, our Messiah. This is something we wake up every single day and we just proclaim as we wake up and go into the world with this message of reconciliation that we have been justified, we have been brought into right relationship through our Lord Christ, the Messiah, who did all the work on the cross, who gave it all up for us, who became the first fruit of the harvest, who became the first fruit of the resurrection. He was the one who died and was risen to never die again. And yet we get to follow in the footsteps of him. He's the forerunner for us that not only through his sacrifice and resurrection and the first fruit of that, that we also as the greater harvest get to experience the resurrection. Are you serious? This is the message we have to bring to the world, to our communities, to our friends. We wake up every single day just blessed and joy to live a holy life before him because he has actually made a way for us to be justified. So Paul says in, in, chapter, uh, in Romans 4, 25, I want to talk for a moment about the calendric, uh, the calendric or the calendar, right? The calendric uh, significance of this. So we talked about how Passover or how unleavened bread builds on the theme of Passover, right? So Passover points to the sacrifice of Christ, right? It points to that sufficient atoning sacrifice on our behalf, that substitutional sacrifice. And it also points to this idea that we are now, uh, through his sacrifice, now if we put our faith in him, we have also died with him in his sacrifice, that we are die, we have, we have died to our old life, right? And so we look at the idea of, of um, Passover as dealing with our position before God. And then last week we talked about how unleavened bread deals with our condition with God, right? Our position, and then unleavened bread is our condition. So unleavened bread points to the idea that we remove the leaven from our lives, right? That we, we leave the old life behind, right? We're no longer an old lump with old leaven filled with evil and malice. We are now a new lump in Christ with truth and sincerity. We talked about that last week. So here's the, here's the theme here. Here's the progression. That Passover is our sacrifice, our atoning sacrifice that brings us in right relationship positionally with God. We also die in Christ when we put our faith in him. We die as he died to ourselves. Unleavened bread, right, becomes that process, that sanctifying process where we are leaving our old life behind and we are picking up new life in Christ. We are living a new life in him. We have put off the old. And first fruits points to that new life. So unleavened bread is putting off the old, right? First fruits is putting on the new, right? Put off the old, put on the new. You are clothed in righteousness. The resurrection of Christ is the new life. We live a resurrected life. Even though we will still die and be resurrected with him, spiritually now, we are now dead to our old life our old man, our old self, 
through Christ, through our faith in Christ. And now, we now can live a new life, a resurrected life. So unleavened bread, the old life is gone, cleaning out the leaven of our old life, and living a new life, which is a resurrected life. Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits. Romans 6, uh, verse 5, we see this sort of play out. This is what Paul says in Romans 6, verse 5 through 11. He says, For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. So if we have died to Christ, or if we have died to ourselves in Christ, just as he has died on our behalf for us, he's died on our behalf for us, so now that our response to that act, to that sacrifice, is that we die to ourselves for him. Such a beautiful relationship. So if we have died in him, Paul says, if we have surely died in him, we will also share not only in his death, but in the resurrection. We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. This is eschatological. This is the end time. We know, we know that our old self, and here it is, our old self, right? Feast of unleavened bread. Passover is the sacrifice, the death, our death in him, um, our death to ourselves and life in him, right, is Passover. We know that our old self was crucified with him. Um, so that old self, right, the putting off of the old self crucified in him, unleavened bread, cleaning out the leaven, cleaning out the old life, was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So the control of it, right? When we, when we cleanse out the leaven, when we decide to leave our old life behind and we pick up our new life, our resurrected life in Christ, that we're no longer even, you know, we, we may have, um, we may be tempted to sin and we may still engage in it, but we're not controlled by it. We're not living a life perpetually in it. So the, the control of it is gone through the Feast of Unleavened Bread, through, through cleaning out the old leaven. And then he says, for one who has died has been set free. Set free. Now we have died with Christ. We believe that we will also live with him. Resurrection. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Firstborn of the dead. Death no longer has dominion over him. So the resurrection life is a life that is free from the power of sin. It's the life free from the power of death and sin. You see the progression between Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits. Paul kind of Paul uses that same track in, 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 in Romans chapter 6, 5 through 11. I'll leave you with this point of application we are also first fruits we are a kind of first fruits because of Christ coming and him being the first fruit of the harvest he becoming the first fruit through his resurrection so that we would enjoy resurrection in him as the fulfillment of the harvest James 1 verse 18 says this 
of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Oh, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So our very act of believing in Christ and believing in the word of truth, believing everything that the word of truth says about Jesus and living by faith in him, we have become a type of first fruit of his, cre of his creatures. You right now, if you've put your faith in Christ, you have become a first fruit. Why? Because by his will, he brought you forth by the word of faith. You heard the truth, you heard the message of Christ, and you believed, you accepted, you believed in him, and you live by faith in him today. And by that evidence, you have become a type of first fruit for all creatures. Second, Thess Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. They were a first fruit kind in their town. In Thessalonica, this church, Paul is saying, you are, by your faith and understanding and belief in the truth, which is Christ, you have become now a first fruit for your town. You have become one in which people can look to as a guarantee of what God's going to do in the future. So you are the first fruit of the harvest that God is going to bring in Thessalonica. We are a kind of first fruit for his creature. So that means wherever you go, wherever you are, wherever God plants you, whatever, whatever social sphere you find yourself in, wh whether it's you're at work, you are the first fruit of God's harvest at your workplace. You are the first fruit of God's harvest in your family. You may be the first fruit of God's harvest in this church as, pe as God brings people into this place that are searching and desperate in need for his gospel, for his good news. We are the first fruits of those that are going to come and be saved in God's harvest. You are the first fruit of God's harvest. Wherever you are, wherever he has placed you, you are his first fruit of what he's going to do. That we can trust that we will be resurrected with Christ. We can trust that our first fruit of faith right, will be built upon by God and that our faith as first fruits will, uh, will uh, be partnered with God in his ultimate harvest. That our faith in first fruits looks forward to a harvest of people that are going to live by faith in Christ and that we can be the first fruit of that harvest wherever we are. Like when we wake up in the morning, that should motivate us to live a holy life before God because we are his first fruit kind. And that's how Jesus fulfills the feast of first fruits through his resurrection, what he's done on our behalf. And we are accepted through his first fruit offering and his resurrection. That's amazing. And that's how he does it. And that's how God's determined and willed it. And we get to participate in it. Are you kidding me? We get to participate in this process. Being sanctified. Being brought 
through a process of sanctification because we've already been made perfect through the one offering and the one sacrifice, as Hebrews chapter 10 says. That's amazing. That is, that is cause for celebration and joy this morning. Thank you, Lord, that you are our first fruit and that you have made us first fruits through your offering on our behalf and through your resurrection that we will one day share in with you when you come again. So good. So that's it today, guys. Thank you for joining us today. Great to have you. Have a great week. We'll see you next week as we dive into the Feast of Pentecost. It's going to be so good. But until then, have a great day. We'll see you next week.